0: Apamada and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at apamada.org.
1: Thank you.
2: Good morning everyone. So glad that you're all here. I had a, I've been working on this dharma talk for some time, and then two things happened that made me alter course a little bit, or or I'll give three separate dharma talks. It's one, <laughs> one or the other. Uh, The first thing that occurred to me was that it's 9-11. And I was telling Lori earlier today, uh, one, that I was at 9-11 on September 11th, 2001. And two, that my way-seeking mind talk was on 9-11 exactly 15 years later to the hour or minute. And so this day has a special uh, meaning, I think, not just for me, but for humanity. And so I want to acknowledge it with a question why do we practice? practice. Hmm. Earlier this morning, uh, I saw one of those um, photos of the New York city skyline with the two, two light beams signifying the towers and the slogan, we will never forget. And I had a reaction to that slogan. The first one was not the most generous one, and I wonder whether it's sadly the majority of, of, um, of how people interpret, interpret it, which is, we will never forget that great harm has come to us, and if you— and then out of that, um, a ripple of something I would call um, mind of retribution or a kind of um, closing down rather than opening up. A more generous interpretation that I arrived at is that uh, is the memory that so many people gave their lives to save others on that day. Uh, true in the moment act of giving, giving of the highest good, your own life for the welfare of others. <clears throat> and then my third interpretation is of is a more like a wish, which is, we will never forget what the Buddha taught. And this is in part what I wanted to talk about, a core teaching. It's often talked about or written about as the teaching of no self, which I personally think uh, is easily misunderstood or um, mistranslated, because I think that no, the word no has a invitation towards meaninglessness or a kind of nihilistic term. And so a long time ago, I heard uh, Stephen Batchelor talk and he rephrased it as not self, instead of no self, not self. So the second thing that happened uh, as I was preparing this talk was that Peg sent an email about this very topic. and in in her in in Peg's wonderful way, it was a it was a Dharma talk in the email. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to return to it because there's so much. Wisdom in what she said, and I want to just add a few points of of uh, I want to offer a little bit of spaciousness around what she said, and let us kind of take it in some uh, a little more deeply, and then offer maybe a few comments. So I'll read uh, I'll read a few of her her paragraphs as a refresher. He wrote. In Zen, we are told to take the backward step and shine the light within. Ultimately, this exploration becomes fruitless and exhausting as we cannot seem to make any progress in finding a self. We have a lot of opinions and stories about who we are, but inside we are filled with conflicting and confusing thoughts, random impressions, emotion states, and nothing seems solid or permanent. Everything inside is in constant flux. It's like a crowded cocktail party with people talking incessantly, coming and going. Gradually, in meditation, we lose our fascination with all that noise and settle down below the waves. If we go deep enough, we rest in silence and stillness. Our sense of being a solid, permanent self with part- <laughs> 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 Disappears into just being. Our sense of being a solid, permanent self with particular qualities disappears into just being. You may find this a bit unsettling as I did. Yes, my sense of a solid self was gone, but it was replaced with a yawning emptiness, the emptiness of space, like an ice cave. In our teachings, this awakening to our fundamental emptiness is viewed as an important realization. But it really worried me, and it scared me. What about compassion, the warm and tender of the bodhisattva, the great care for the whole world. And so what I thought uh, I might do is acknowledge what I think is a fundamental difficulty of this concept of no self and not self and maybe offer a few support systems by way of analogy and some of the things that I've been studying to help us with this. And I think it's a problem like Peg was acknowledging because one, it could be scary uh, in some ways. And this is of course, after you might have had some meditative realization but then it's often quite troubling even beforehand because it's a very thorny psychological um, concept. Or, um, and if you've been practicing for a while, it comes up again and again. And I think it could be one of those things like where you say to yourself, oh yeah, no self. I know that one, or not self. Yeah, I, right, I'm not a self. But, but the more you encounter it, the less you see it, and the less it kind of has the capacity to deeply impact what it means or what, what it really is about. And so part of my part of what I'm trying to do here this morning is give us just a little bit of a structured space to really ask ourselves when we hear this teaching of not self. What does it mean for us? And so let me actually build in a deliberate pause here and sit with this for a minute or two. When you hear the teaching of no self, What happens for you? What do you experience? So maybe after I, uh, I share with you some of these support systems, I'd love to hear about what you, you know, what you discovered or what you thought about. So for the past, uh, couple of weeks after my morning run and on my walk with my furry son, Bunk, I've been reading this book uh, called Losing Ourselves, Learning to Live Without a Self. And I brought it uh, out of which some of these ideas come from. I think it's a wonderful book. So as a book recommended, recommendation, I highly support, highly, it has my highest uh enthusiastic thumbs up, but I want to share with you the cover photo, which I think is quite evocative. Just, uh... It's a picture of a kind of unwinding ribbon of what used to be a more solid seeming. body. And as a description of this painting, there's uh, one, the author, Jake Garfield, who's a professor of philosophy, uh, describes this, this unwinding ribbon as a looping spiral of interaction between biology, psychology, and social structures. But the phrase that I was really struck with Poetically, was this short phrase of looping, spiraling interaction? Which I think is another one of these metaphors for mutual causality and codependent arising and interconnectivity and um, all the words we typically hear in the in the Dharmic tradition. So I think one of the reasons we have difficulty with this concept is because in many ways it's like, a, like an optical illusion where if you think of your favorite optical illusion where, where you're, you're seeing something and you know that something you're seeing is not actually the way your mind is interpreting it, And yet, you can't unsee it. You can't, despite your knowledge, like for example, the famous one of two lines are drawn on a piece of paper. One is slightly longer than the other, or even, I think they could even be equal equal lengths. But the very edges of the lines, uh, one of them has arrows pointing inward like arrows like typical arrows and one of them has the arrows pointing this out and so the ones where the arrow is pointing in look shorter than the one pointing out and you know this so you know that the lines are equal but your mind reads that optical illusion as as being of of different lengths and no matter how hard you try you can't actually un you can't your, your mind is creating a reality that is different from the one, you know, to be factually true and you can't will yourself to, to unsee it. Maybe there's a small moment. This sometimes happens with optical illusions or tricky photos where you could see it the other way, but then your mind quickly snaps back to that first. So something about knowledge is not enough in this particular conundrum we have. So what I think is interesting, one of the things that's interesting about the sense of self is um, when we hear the phrase, no self, I almost think it's like trying to convince you of something that, is that you do experience so to say no self is almost like um it might be true but like a good optical illusion it's just not going to go away because you you heard that it's not true so i think it's important in our journeys with this concept of no self not self to acknowledge that the sense we have of a self is real. The the reality behind it might not be real, but the sense itself is real. We as humans experience something we call the self, or we label as the self. And I think the troubles that we get into as a a species is the more than of course that we believe that sense of self to be true, the more solid it becomes, and the more fundamentalist our views become, which lead to things like the most horrific kinds of acts that we can um, force onto one another. So one way I think of dealing with this sense of self or re, I kind of think of it as maybe rejiggering it a little bit, (laughs) is to think of analogies where we're sort of doing a little bit of translational work. Instead of the word uh, self, What might we use instead, or how might we reframe it a little bit? So one, I think, interesting example is something we're all familiar with, which is, which is money. We, we don't, we know we don't discover money. Like money was not like, picture a $10 bill somewhere. If you're walking down the street and you see a $10 bill on the sidewalk, you know, it's not part of the natural world that we created this thing. We invented something called money. And then we first used gold bars and then we went, symbolize that, it's a paper, but it's a creation, right? We're not fooled by the fact that money is an invention, right? And yet, it's a mistake, I think, to deny the fact that money serves an important purpose and has value, and that value is real. In other words, something that is, something can both be invented and real with value at the same time. It's a foolish errand to say money doesn't exist and money is fictional, therefore, we should have nothing to do with it. It's in fact, a very, very useful invention that actually help helps bring networks of people and societies together rather than apart. And then of course it gets perverted and if the view around it becomes too tight. That's where troubles start, but. So money gets its existence and its sense of value as collective acts of interpretation. Together, we tell the story of what this thing means, together we agree that it serves this function, and together we allow it to perform its function. So here's the little bit of translation. It's fictional. But it's factual, it's made up and yet it has a fact of purpose. There's another analogy that I think is useful. Uh, and it, it comes from the theater for all you thespians out there. Similar to money, we know that the persona of Hamlet is is not uh real in, in in the sense of this is, uh this physical world but when you go to the theater and you watch the play it had the, the the persona of hamlet is very much real in that context and also in other contexts because hamlet is now a cultural signifier and when you talk about hamlet people also know what some people know what that character means or the troubles he has and so forth. So the the so what does uh the character of Hamlet do in the play? It's a kind of role. Actors have roles, right? And they fulfill those roles as fully as they can to, to bring that fictional character to life. I don't think it's an accident that when you practice Zen in a formal way, that one of the things as your practice matures, you are asked to do is take up roles. Called literally roles lest there be any confusion. <laughs> so here's I think uh the main the main linguistic argument that this author makes is that instead of thinking of ourselves as having selves, these solid independent entities which by the way half of the book is a philosophical li- logical disarming of that view I'm not going to go into any of that but if if you if you wanna if you want to see how a philosopher dismantles the view that we have a self that's go ahead read it and that's the first hundred pages but what he keeps coming back to over and over again, is that instead of this concept of self, what happens if you replace it with the concept of person? And for him, there's a big difference. And this is what I think I'm trying, I'm slowly crawling to that unlike the self, which could be decontextualized and completely isolated. A person like a role in the theater only means something by virtue of the other people on stage and fulfilling their roles. So a person by definition one needs others to become who they are. Hamlet cannot be Hamlet without Ophelia and without Claudius and without Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. By definition, Shakespeare said so. So again, I want to come back to this. I want to offer you this maybe, um, this alternate definition of person or personhood. A person is someone or some conglomerate of, of energies that is poised between the biological, the psychological, the social, And lives on the cusp, on this fine line, this fine edge between fact and fiction. The meaning of a person is invented. And I think in this non-dualistic Zen way is neither true nor not true. poised on the cusp of all these forces coming together that gives us this sense of being solid. Hamlet, I'm sure if you asked him whether he's real, would say yes. And this is where some generosity, feeling of generosity might creep into our practice when we begin to acknowledge that we can only become fully who we are because the others who participate in the plays of our lives play their role the way they the way they do, so that we might play our roles to the best of our capacity. And it's only by others playing their roles that we get to be us. And out of that could come the sense of deep appreciation for everything that others bring to us and a deeper sense of responsibility, knowing that, we, that they affect us and we affect them. And I guess as, a, as an actor, <laughs> the room, Cersei could testify to what happens when someone forgets their line or every, all the cascading sequences of events when one role um, becomes different from expectation and so forth. So, the last analogy I want to offer is that we are very much like complicated bees. Complicated what? Bees. Buzzing bees? Buzzing bees. <laughs> Honey-making bees. <laughs> <laughs> We do not uh, understand a beehive by studying individual bees and scaling up. That does not work. We understand an individual bee by understanding how the whole hive works in what the bee's role is within the hive. So in other words, the directionality here really matters. When you think of yourself more as a person rather than a self, you think of yourself as a being that has a role and that role is directly dependent on the other roles that are fulfilled around you. Only then can you begin understanding more deeply what exactly your role is. And so there's an obvious moral dimension to all this. And we know it, I think, from our life's experience that people who are, self-centered, centered around the idea that they have a self, they become, in their, in their mind's eye, the center, self-centered. And out of that center is born the capacity to think that their belief is central and the tighter the grasp forms around that belief no matter what the more at the periphery everyone else
3: becomes whereas if you
2: think of yourself as a person then with a role then you can't ever really become central you might have more of a spotlight in the play if it's Hamlet, for example. There's Hamlet has more lines than anybody else, but those lines are nonsensical if there are no other roles surrounding him. So he's he never he's never the center. And so I'll, I'll end my talky part by reminding us of Dogen's great invocation to practice. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. When actualized by the myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. And I want to quote the author, Jay Garfield, with his very succinct interpretation of what Dogen said, because it resonated with me. He says, Dogen here connects the recognition of the absence of self with a kind of spontaneous engagement with reality. One that neither reifies subject and object, nor consciously denies the reality of subject or object, but rather does not thematize subject and object at all. This is an attitude that can become a permanent, this is an attitude that with which we can become a permanent expert at the, at the mode of being. And I dare say that if more of us were experts in this mode of being, as persons interconnected with one another, and tragedies like 9-11 would not occur. (laughs) That's That's the dream, anyway. That this is maybe the most powerful antidote that we could have to prevent something like that from happening again, if more of us really took this teaching, um, deeper into ourselves somehow. So that's all I have to say. And I'd like to open up the conversation to what, what is it that moved for you in this inquiry this morning?
3: Hey, Joe.
1: Hi, Christoph. Thank you for this talk. This is very delightful. I i I've not heard of Jay Garfield, and I've I've already ordered the book while you we were talking. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, my question, uh, uh, I think this is a the, a most beautiful point, and 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 um, a great gateway to freedom uh, that is offered by the Buddha and by his followers through Dogen and, and through Pagan Flint uh, is, um, my question is, what what occurs to you uh, when you hear Dogen say, body and mind drop away? Do you actually experience your mind shifting some way? Or, or do you have a different uh, it, I'm, I'm kind of asking the same kind of question that you asked you know what do you feel when you hear about non self i'm wondering what do you feel or what do you experience when you encounter the line that body and mind drop away.
2: That's such a great question i'll, I'll answer it in reverse Joel <laughs> in, in reverse meaning i'll answer it by not answering. Um, and offering an example when I, when. Uh, uh, when I lead the rogue chant in the mornings or like this morning, I have the rogue chant memorized. <clears throat> and I always find it almost miraculous, maybe in the same way as an actor who really knows their line, that all I have to do is sit there and the words just, it just happened. But sometimes, every so often, this self reifying voice or thought of worry shows up for me, like, what if I forget? And then it's that voice that makes me forget (laughs) and then the panic happens. And then something that I really know and don't, requires no effort whatsoever gets co-opted by this voice that starts panicking. So it seems like this is the effort of no effort that like, you know, once that effort has been put in to memorize the, the chant, all I have to do is somehow trust that it'll just do itself. And if I, in any way, uh, reify my mind, the mind itself starts interrupting the no mind. And I think that's likewise true to the other half of your equation, Joe, in terms of body. I know the examples of athletes, performers, dancers, musicians, doing things with their bodies with complete spontaneity, freedom, uh, fullness of expression, and it's only when they begin conceptualizing things that the process is interrupted.
1: I have a friend, a, a, a wonderful friend, he's actually passed away, uh, who early in his career as a as a psychiatrist, made a study of what's called the yips uh, in sports, which is exactly that last point that you're talking about. That was a baseball, all-star baseball players who suddenly forget how to throw a baseball uh, because their mind has inserted itself into a habitual activity. So I I appreciate that that you answered the question in reverse, because I I think that may be the only way. But uh, it's one that still intrigues me a lot. So thank you very much for a uh, delightful talk.
3: Wow! And thank you so much, Krista, for this. Um, when I first, um, when I first was was practicing with Achmeda, and heard talking about no self, and so on, Um, I went, what? I mean, I spent all these, like, 60-something years, uh, you know, in the delusion, which I understand now, of of becoming what I will be, and so on. Uh, And uh, it was sort of shocking, and then it was sort of uh, intriguing uh, to explore And then uh, a bit later, when I was learning um, Peg's Meta, I, as I often do when I'm learning a new chant, I get the words mixed up. And what, what I said was, may this body be boundless. And I broke out laughing because obviously that's what happens when we die and and that was just a beautiful sense because in, if our bodies will not be boundless while we are alive. We need them held together uh, and, and within some boundaries. Uh, but, but just even thought of that about, about who, what am I anyway? really expanded hugely for me in that moment uh, and has continued to. And I really appreciate your talk in relationship to it. Um, I, I tend to use the word being now as, as I am a being, uh, which isn't a, a being or a bee, a bee, you know uh, that was pretty funny too not quite hearing what you were saying but but it's it's a it's a lovely place to experience the world around me from, and I don't I'm not always as you say none of us are ever able to do that constantly and yet it's it's coming to me, you know more and more and I sometimes feel overwhelmed by it, but it's not in a scary way most of the time. So anyway, I just wanted to say thank you to you and to everyone who contributes to, the, the sense of the connection, the role, as you use the word, although I'm still having trouble, words, words are one of the things that allow us to become boundless in our minds and and yet that they always have some, some limits. So I have gratitude for all of that. Thank you.
2: I think I know what my Halloween costume is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> a, little
4: Z, a little Bumblebee, <laughs> a bee of beans. <laughs> so I'm wondering if there's a non-dual way of looking at this. So like not one, not two. And I'm thinking about the two parallel lines. Or I'm thinking as a photographer, of two 30-foot trees 100 feet foot away and one 200 foot away, mm-hmm. and how one's shorter than the other to the photographer. Not that he's wrong, but to the photographer, yeah. they're different heights, to the person with the tape measure, the same. So, so more, more than, than just denying saying one's right, one's wrong, I think you and I've had this discussion in, in many arenas, you know that they're different vantage points and kind of holding it lightly what the tape measure says
2: yeah and not just that the the we're discovering now we via quantum physics and uh, neuroscience that even that the tree as a tree doesn't actually exist No it's, there, it's constructed. No like dream. all of reality is constructed. We need to,
4: that's why God yes. gave man the job of God. naming things. It didn't exist before. It had a name before. There was a person. Cersei?
0: Right? So, um, this, I mean, this talk is interesting in a number of ways. Thank you. Um, but it got my anthropological mind going and my. Acting, mind going—you've got all the selves going, of which there are none. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) but the as an anthropologist, I I think often um, through our work and studying that uh, of this concept of connected subjectivity, that we only come into being as persons, and we use the term personhood and talk about personhood as this process that is about is. Truly comes out of interhuman connection. So there isn't a person unless you're seen, unless you're recognized by others as that kind of person in that moment. So it's something that is an actual, you know, real observable process um, that's interesting. So um, I think about that applying to who we are as Sangha all the time, right? But um but also thinking about Sangha and this idea of roles, I layered that on top of being an actress and I'm adding a little layer of complication, which I think is hopefully fun because it's fun for me to think sure. about it as an actress, which is that when we think of roles, right? We think we learn how to do these things, we're ended in, in our relationship and it just comes up, you know, if we don't get, get in the way with our minds, then it will, will perform our roles. But one of the things that we know as actors is that every iteration, every second that you do the role again, because it's in relationship with others, it's always different. Right. So there's a preciousness to that, that you're it's ne- that even in your role, that is, it is you're constantly shifting from one iteration to the next. And I keep thinking about trying to kind of dilate that that moment of being or the fluid fluidity of being so that I'm aware of how what it means to say the chant now with all of you today because this is the only time it's going to be this way with this breath in this moment. So, um, you know, for actors, we don't, if you just give somebody your line without like really looking at them and thinking about what they're actually saying, it's like, you're not connecting right but if you respond to what's actually present because you're connecting and aware then it's completely it's alive so anyway that's come just adding a few comments thank you